The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 25 All right then, look, let's, let's, uh, let's crack on. Um, before I, I start, as always, I'll do my usual appeal to you all, and that is to say, if you can, please go over to... Um, uh, patreon.com forward slash the bearded wit um, and sign up to become a patron um, so I can keep on doing this and lots of other stuff uh, I would really really appreciate it if you would take the time to pop over to patreon.com forward slash the bearded wit uh, and from five dollars a month sign up to support this lunacy that I'm doing to keep you guys amused um, it would mean the world to me. I have a growing number of patrons and I'm very grateful for all of you all over the world. Um, and um, I'd like to give a shout out to all of those people that have written to me in the last week to say such very positive things. Um, so I will be doing a proper shout out to people next week, um, uh, but we're sort of running a bit behind time, so I'll crack on with it. But thank you. Keep all the messages coming. I, as I say, I do respond to all of them. Uh, and they do mean the world to me. I mean, getting getting notes from people in New Zealand and Australia and South Africa and India and the United United States of America and Canada and wherever, uh, it's it's mind blowing and incredibly humbling uh, that an idea that started off uh, to keep friends and family amused in March of uh, last year to bring us all together when the first lockdown was beginning to bite and we were all feeling a bit sort of disconnected and, and a bit bewildered by what everything that was going on. Um, uh, having having guys sort of reach out and say, um, yeah, you should do it as a podcast. So I put it out as a podcast and here we are, 80,000 listeners around the world later and I'm my mind is reeling. It's wonderful. You're all fantastic. Thank you so much for being part of this. Right, enough of that. Oh, 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 before I do start, I have also, um, I'm taking all of these live, these Facebook live videos, uh, and uh, I'm putting it into, uh, on, I'm sort of tidying them up a wee bit, um, and sort of uh, sorting out um, both image and, uh, and uh, video, sorry, video, yeah, image and video, <laughs> I'll try that again in English, uh, audio and video levels and all sorts, uh, and posting them onto a YouTube channel. There's only the first um, episode up at the moment because there's it takes a bit of time to to sort stuff out for that, but I'll be uh, releasing more and more content onto that, and that will not just be for this stuff, but I will also include all the the uh, other material that I'm doing, uh, not exclusively, but limited to, but but including the rats in the walls, gothic and uh, ghoulish stuff that's coming up very shortly. Um, so all of that stuff will be going on there, uh, as well as uh, on the Rats in the Walls page here. But do you please go to uh, YouTube uh, if you if you are if you have an account there, uh, and subscribe on on the you, you can find it. it's the Bearded Wit page. Um, if you can find that on YouTube and, and uh, like and follow and share and subscribe and do all of that stuff, uh, I will be enormously grateful. Uh, as always. So right, okay. 
Enough, Matthew. Let's start. Oh, tea, of course. I hope you've all got your tea, all of you, if you're able to do that. Yeah, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's, it is my team. Uh, it has been for many, many years. Sorry. I didn't. I should, should have chosen something a little less contentious than a Chelsea mug, shouldn't I? Oh, well, there you go. Anyway, here we go. So, no no recap, really, because um, last week we, we completed uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Um, we have now learnt that God's last message to his creation... <coughs> Excuse me. That God's last message to his creation uh, was, uh, we apologise for the inconvenience, which I think is possibly... <laughs> the most poignant thing ever heard and there was a very very point i love i've forgotten actually i got quite emotional reading it but i'd forgotten the the whole um that last encounter with marvin after everything that he's gone through the fact that he's actually older than the universe itself he's he's gone backwards and forwards so many times uh and that uh when he reads that his response is oh i, I think i feel okay about that and it's just wow what a moment so we are now into mostly harmless which is the last of the books i had someone comment actually uh, i i shared this to a, 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 a um one of the pages on on facebook that i'm, I'm part of and they, they very generously support me sharing my posts and things um and so it's alexander don't jam the whole of facebook AI operations with the perfect tea nice youtube subscribe thank you marvina you're fabulous wonderful um no what was i saying i was saying something it was going to be wildly interesting and witty and i've completely forgotten um 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 oh god i really have forgotten i can't rewind my brain uh, oh well never mind it's not important what was I talking about? Okay, I was talking about Marvin, and then I was talking about. I'm having I'm having a senior moment here. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Sorry. Okay, you know what? It'll come. It'll come to me halfway through, and I'll I'll, I'll remember, and then suddenly throw it into a part of it. Right. God, imagine living inside this head. This one. I've got to do it twenty four seven. Gordon Bennett. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, that was it. <laughs> I knew it would come if I stalled long enough. <laughs> sorry, this is such a load of crap at the beginning of this one. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the reason I was uh, I was talking about is is that this uh, on on some of the groups that I post that the ZZ Plural Alpha and other things, which are great to go to if you're if you're fans, search them out on on Facebook. But um, I posted in one, and a guy said, "Oh, aren't there actually six books in the series?" Um, because there is another book called And Another Thing, um, which is actually um, uh, penned by, I think it's is it Owen Coffer, um, who did it with the full uh, backing of everybody involved with it. And I, I, I kind of refer to this as the five books um, series because I'm talking about the stuff that Douglas wrote. Uh, I'm not taking the sixth book off the table if you would like me to read that after this one. Um, so perhaps... Uh, drop me a line if you'd like me to do that make a note in the comments or whatever uh, and I'll do that I'll, I'll do the the sixth book but also lovely fans fabulous people 
Uh, drop me a line about what else you'd like me to look at. I've had a number of things. People have been talking about Terry Pratchett, but I would need to be a bit clear on rights and so on and so forth with that one. Um, but I think I can get away with the same kind of grey area in that this is not done for money. This is done for um, uh, as a, a friends and family thing. Um, but if you, if you could um, give me some ideas... Um, I'll give them some consideration and maybe sort of create a poll or something and we can we can look at who we want to go to. And it can be uh, your favourite authors, it can be your favourite books, whatever. Uh, let's have a look at it from there. All right? So, enough of that codswallop. Good gracious, Matthew. You started late and you've blethered on now for 15 minutes. Right. <clears throat> okay. Are you sitting comfortably, everybody? Then... I will begin. Mostly Harmless. Book five in the trilogy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. I'll give you the foreword. It was written by Dirk Maggs, his long-time collaborator. Foreword by Dirk Maggs. This is a wonderful, terrible book. Wonderful in that it contains more of Douglas's unique humour and driving obsessions than many of his other works of fiction. Terrible in its grand and utter finality. Many other writers would have happily reunited the inhabitants of the Hitchhiker's universe in such a way as to leave comfortable room for the next sequel. To send Arthur, Ford and company off on a series of diverting adventures and then return them safely home wherever that might be, in time for tea, probably not dispensed by a Nutrimat appliance. Douglas was only too aware of the expectations surrounding a new Hitchhiker's book, so much so that the business of writing it was almost as dramatic as its content. Yet he could not turn out work to fit a template, even one he might have devised himself. Of course, he would recycle good ideas from defunct or nearly defunct projects, his unused Doctor Who and the Cricket Men forming the core of life, the universe and everything, for example, or Sharda morphing into the labyrinthine world of Dirk Gently's holistic detective agency. Mostly Harmless is a brave departure. Douglas was determined to challenge his characters and the reader in a maze of parallel plots. This was going to be a roller coaster ride into the unknown, a tour of his passions and fears. No wonder he found it difficult to settle himself to writing it. The tales of Douglas being locked in a hotel room in order to meet his deadline aren't all apocryphal, but there's a serious point in amongst the dinner party anecdotes. To innovate non-stop is an exhausting process, and this hitchhiker's novel represents his predictive imagination at its most extraordinary. The guide, Mark II, is a chilling and prescient warning about mixing artificial intelligence with corporate venality. We are only just waking up to the box-ticking, goal-driven, share-and-enjoy surveillance society Douglas anticipated. The book is also a snapshot of a creative mind struck by two complementary and equally chilling themes, mortality and extinction. 
In the years leading up to the writing of this book, Douglas's general interest in the collision of science and the arts had hardened into a deep and abiding interest in the fate of life upon his home planet. His last chance to see project, tracking down and observing Earth's most threatened species, wasn't a casual diversion, but an issue that gripped his conscience and fired his imagination, as it should do all of ours. In Mostly Harmless, these themes are played out by characters we've grown to love. There is more than one threatened species in this book. As in the universe we experience every day of our lives, unconscious forces work blindly to react in entirely logical, unsentimental ways. Whether a butterfly, butterfly flaps its wings or a meteorite strikes a lost intergalactic battleship, the first domino topples to create random excuse me, random patterns. They intersect in a chillingly rational way. Douglas works well outside the comfort zone of his reader, and yet we laugh at the interplay of characters. The unique observational style with which he turns the mundane into the surreal, and the outright slapstick of scenes involving bog hogs and security robots. Then we arrive at the climax of this story and its sudden shuddering halt. It's hard not to feel a little bruised, but then we must remember that Conan Doyle tipped Sherlock Holmes over the Reichenbach Falls, but eventually gave in to sentiment and is bank manager. When Douglas first proposed that we bring Hitchhikers full circle and complete the saga on radio where it all began, I was thrilled to be his choice to finish the job, and intensely curious as to what his ideas were for its ending. With three novels to plan, starting with the epic sweep of Life, the Universe and Everything, which he christened the tertiary phase, we did not discuss Mostly Harmless in much detail. But he admitted that he would like to write another Hitchhiker book with a happier ending. The fact, in fact, the brave twist in the tale of this story can be seen as ironic, not cataclysmic. Douglas is quietly waiting for us to work out for ourselves that something bigger is going on than the intrigues of men, mice and Vogons. Because the premise of governing the operation of the guide Mark II leaves him considerable wiggle room for a further book about Arthur, Ford and company. The fact that he did not find time to write it is the tragic part. Because Douglas hinted that he might have yet more adventures for Arthur and to provide closure in his absence, the final episode of our radio version of Mostly Harmless, the quintessential phase, concluded with a coda consisting of several possible happier endings, some of which looped back to previous iterations of Arthur's life. This proved a less disturbing resolution if listeners chose to listen on, but the end of the tale as Douglas left it was still there to stop at if they'd rather not. But here's the thing. Regardless of any thoughts upon a future for the Hitchhiker's characters by the rest of us, the ending of this book is Douglas's final published word on the subject and, taken on its own terms, is as brave an act by an author with his own creation as can be imagined. Dirk Maggs, director, dramatiser and co-producer, BBC Radio 4's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, tertiary, quandary and quintessential phases.
Anything that happens, happens. Anything that, in happening, causes something else to happen, causes something else to happen. Anything that, in happening, causes itself to happen again, happens again. It doesn't necessarily do it in chronological order, though. The history of the galaxy has got a little muddled for a number of reasons, partly because those who are trying to keep track of it have got a little muddled, but also because some very muddling things have been happening anyway. One of the problems has to do with the speed of light and the difficulties involved in trying to exceed it. You can't. Nothing travels faster than the speed of light, with the possible exception of bad news, which obeys its own special laws. The Hingefriel people of Arkintufel Minor did try to build spaceships that were powered by bad news, but they didn't work particularly well, and were so extremely unwelcome whenever they arrived anywhere, that there wasn't really any point in being there. So, by and large, the peoples of the galaxy tended to languish in their own local models, and the history of the galaxy itself was, for a long time, largely cosmological. Which is not to say people weren't trying. They tried sending off fleets of spaceships to do battle or business in distant parts, but these usually took thousands of years to get anywhere. By the time they eventually arrived, other forms of travel had been discovered, which made use of hyperspace to circumvent the speed of light, so that whatever battles it was that sorry, so that whatever battles it was that the slower than light fleets had been sent to fight had already been taken care of centuries earlier by the time they actually got there. This didn't, of course, deter their crews from wanting to fight the battles anyway. They were trained. They were ready. They'd had a couple of thousand years' sleep. They'd come a long way to do a tough job, and by Zarquan they were going to do it. This was when the first major models of galactic history set in. With battles continually re-erupting centuries after the issues that they'd been fought over had supposedly been settled. However, these models were as nothing to the ones which historians had to try and unravel once time travel was discovered, and battles started pre-erupting hundreds of years before the issues even arose. When the infinite improbability drive arrived and whole planets started turning up unexpectedly... <laughs> sorry, I do apologise. When the infinite improbability drive arrived and whole planets started turning unexpectedly into banana fruitcake, the great history faculty of the University of Maximegalon finally gave up, closed itself down and surrendered its buildings to the rapidly growing joint faculty of divinity and water polo, which had been after them for years. Which is all very well, of course, but it almost certainly means that no one will ever know for sure where, for instance, the Grebulons came from, or exactly what it was they wanted. And this is a pity, because if anybody had known anything about them, it is just possible that a most terrible catastrophe would have been averted 
or at least would have had to find a different way to happen. Click. Hum. The huge grey Grebulon reconnaissance ship moved silently through the black void. It was travelling at fabulous, breathtaking speed, yet appeared, against the glimmering background of a billion distant stars, to be not moving at all. It was just one dark speck, frozen against an infinite granularity of brilliant night. On board the ship, everything was as it had been for millennia, deeply dark and silent. Click, hum. At least almost everything. Click, click, hum. Click, hum. Click, hum. Click, hum. Click, 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 hum. Hmm. A low-level supervising program woke up a slightly higher-level supervising program deep in the ship's semi-somnolent cyberbrain, and reported to it um, that whatever it, it went. <clears throat> sorry, I'll try that again. I'm, I'm T. You know that's what I need. Here we go. <clears throat> try again. A low-level supervising program woke up with a... Woke up... <laughs> teeth. I need to put my teeth in. A low-level supervising program woke up a slightly higher-level supervising program deep in the ship's semi-somnolent somnolent cyber brain and reported to it that whatever it went, whenever it went click, all it got was a hum. The higher-level supervising programme asked it what it was supposed to get, and the low-level supervising programme said that it couldn't remember exactly, but thought it was probably more of a sort, and, sort of distant, satisfied sigh, wasn't it? It didn't know what this hum was. Click, hum. Click, hum. That was all it was getting. The higher-level supervising programme considered this, and didn't like it. It asked the low-level supervising programme what exactly it was supervising, and the low-level supervising programme said that it couldn't remember that either, just that it was something that was meant to go click <sighs> every ten years or so, which usually happened without fail. It had tried to consult its error lookup table, but couldn't find it, which is why it was why which is why it had alerted the higher level supervising programme to the problem. The higher level supervising programme went to consult one of its own lookup tables to find out what the low level supervising programme was meant to be supervising. It couldn't find the lookup table. Odd. It looked again. All it got was an error message. It tried to look up the error message in its error message lookup table and couldn't find that either. It allowed a couple of nanoseconds to go by while it went through all this again. Then it woke up its sector function supervisor. The sector function supervisor hit immediate problems. 
It called its supervising agent, which hit problems too. Within a few millionths of a second, virtual circuits that had laid dormant, some for years, some for centuries, were flaring into life throughout the ship. Something, somewhere, had gone terribly wrong. But none of the supervising programmes could tell what it was. At every level, vital instructions were missing, and the instructions about what to do in the event of discovering that vital instructions were missing were also missing. Small modules of software, agents, surged through the logical pathways, grouping, consulting, regrouping. They quickly established that the ship's memory, all the way back to its central mission module, was in tatters. No amount of interrogation could determine what it was that had happened. Even the central mission module itself seemed to be damaged. This made the whole problem very simple to deal with. Replace the central mission module. There was another one, a backup, an exact duplicate of the original. It had to be physically replaced because, for safety reasons, there was no link whatsoever between the original and its backup. Once the central mission module was replaced, it could itself supervise the reconstruction of the rest of the system in every detail, and all would be well. Robots were instructed to bring the backup central mission module from the shielded strong room, where they guarded it, to the ship's logic chamber for installation. This involved the lengthy exchange of emergency codes and protocols as the robots interrogated the agents as to the authenticity of the instructions. At last, the robots were satisfied that all procedures were correct. They unpacked the backup central mission module from its storage housing, carried it out of the storage chamber, fell out of the ship and went spinning off into the void. This provided the first major clue as to what it was that was wrong. Further investigation quickly established what it was that had happened. A meteorite had knocked a large hole in the ship. The ship had not previously detected this because the meteorite had neatly knocked out that part of the ship's processing equipment which was supposed to detect if the ship had been hit by a meteorite. The first thing to do was to try and seal up the hole. This turned out to be impossible because the ship's sensors couldn't see that there was a hole and the supervisors, which should have said that the sensors weren't working properly, weren't working properly, and kept saying that the sensors were fine. The ship could only deduce the existence of the hole from the fact that the robots had clearly fallen out of it, taking its spare brain with it, which would have enabled it to see the hole with them. The ship tried to think intelligently about this. Failed and then blanked out completely for a bit. It didn't realise it had blanked out, of course, because it had blanked out. It was merely surprised to see the stars jump. After the third time the stars jumped, the ship finally realised that it must be blanking out and that it was time to take some serious decisions. It relaxed. Then it realised that it hadn't actually taken the serious decisions yet, and it, it panicked. 
it blanked out again for a bit. When it awoke again, it sealed all the bulkheads around where it knew the unseen hole must be. It clearly hadn't got to its destination yet, it thought, fitfully, but since it no longer had the faintest idea where its destination was or how to reach it, there seemed to be little point in continuing. It consulted what tiny scraps of instructions it could reconstruct from the tatters of its central mission module. Your year mission is to land a safe distance, monitor it, and the rest of the message was complete garbage. Before it blanked out for good, the ship would have to pass on those instructions, such as they were, to its more primitive subsidiary systems. It must also revive all of its crew. There was another problem. Whilst the crew was in hibernation, the minds of all its members, their memories, their identities and their understanding of what they had come to do had all been transferred into the ship's central mission module for safekeeping. The crew would not have had the faintest idea of who they were or what they were doing there. Well, well. Just before it blanked out for the final time, the ship realised that its engineers were beginning to give out, too. The ship and its revived and confused crew coasted on under the control of its subsidiary automatic systems, which simply looked to land wherever they could find to land and monitor whatever they could find to monitor. As far as finding something to land on was concerned, they didn't do very well. The planet they found was desolately cold and lonely, so achingly far from the sun that should warm it that it took all of the enviroform machinery and life supporto systems that they carried with them to render it, or at least enough parts of it, habitable. There were better planets nearer in, but the ship's strategomat was obviously locked into lurk mode and chose the most distance distant and unobtrusive planet, and therefore, furthermore, would not be gainsayed by anybody other than the ship's chief strategic officer. Since everyone on the ship had lost their minds, no one knew who the chief strategic officer was, or, even if he could be identified, how he was supposed to go about gainsaying the ship's strategomat. As far as finding something to monitor was concerned, though, they hit solid gold. One of the extraordinary things about life is the sort of places it's prepared to put up with living. Anywhere it can get some kind of a grip, whether it's the intoxicating seas of Santraginus V, V, Santraginus V, where the fish never seem to care whatever the heck of kind of direction they swim in, or the firestorms of Frastra, where they say life begins at 40,000 degrees, or just burrowing around in the lower intestine of a rat for the sheer unadulterated hell of it. Life will always find a way of hanging on in somewhere. It will even live in New York, though it is hard to know exactly why. In the wintertime, the temperature falls well below the legal minimum, or rather, it would do if anybody had the common sense to set a legal minimum. 
And the last time anybody made a list of the top 100 character attributes of New Yorkers, common sense snuck in at number 79. In the summer, it's too darn hot. It's one thing to be the sort of life form that thrives on heat and finds, as the Frastrans do, that the temperature range between 40,000 and 40,004 is very equable. But it's quite another to be the sort of animal that has to wrap itself up in lots of other animals at one point in your planet's orbit, and then find half an orbit later that your skin's bubbling. Spring is overrated. A lot of the inhabitants of New York will honk on mightily about the pleasures of spring. But if they actually knew the first thing about the pleasures of spring, they would know at least 5,983 better places to spend it in than New York. And that's just on the same latitude. He doesn't like New York, does he, eh? Fall, though, is the worst Few things are worse than fall in New York. Some of the things that live in the lower intestines of rats would disagree, but most of the things that live in the lower intestines of rats are highly disagreeable anyway, so their opinion can and should be discounted. When it's fall in New York, the air smells as if someone's been frying goats in it. <laughs> Actually, he's not wrong, I've been there in fall. <clears throat> Sorry. When it's fall in New York, the air smells as if someone's been frying goats in it. And if you're keen to breathe, the best plan is to open a window and stick your head in a building. <laughs> Tricia McMillan loved New York. She kept on telling herself this over and over again. The Upper West Side, yeah, Midtown, hey, great retail, Soho. The East Village, clothes, books, sushi, Italian delis, yo, movies, yo, also. Trisha had just been to see Woody Allen's new movie, which was all about the angst of being neurotic in New York. He'd made one or two other movies that had explored the same theme, and so Trisha wondered if he'd ever considered moving but heard that he'd set his face against the idea. So, more movies, she guessed. Trisha loved New York because loving New York was a good career move. It was a good retail move, a good cuisine move, not a good taxi move, or a great quality of pavement move, but definitely a career move that ranked amongst the highest and the best. Trisha was a TV anchor person and New York was where most of the world's TV was anchored. Trisha's TV anchoring had been done exclusively in Britain up to that point. Regional news, then breakfast news, early evening news. She would have been called, if the language allowed, a rapidly rising anchor. But hey, this is television. What does it matter? She was a rapidly rising anchor. She had what it took great hair, a profound understanding of strategic lip gloss, the intelligence to understand the world, and a tiny secret interior deadness which meant that she didn't care. Everybody has their moment of great opportunity in life. If you happen to miss the one you care about, then everything else in life becomes eerily easy. Trisha had only ever missed one opportunity. These days it didn't even make her tremble quite so much as it used to to think about it. She guessed that it was that bit of her that had gone dead. NBS needed a new anchor. 
Mo Minetti was leaving the USAM breakfast show to have a baby. She'd been offered a mind-bubbling amount of money to have it on the show, but she declined unexpectedly on grounds of personal privacy and taste. Teams of NBS lawyers had sieved through her contract to see if this constituted legitimate grounds, but in the end, reluctantly, they had to let her go. This was, for them, particularly galling, because normally reluctantly letting someone go was an expression that had its boot on quite another foot. The world was out that sorry the word was out that maybe just maybe a british accent would fit the hair the skin tone and the bridge work would have to be up to american network standards but there had been a lot of british accents up there thanking their mothers for the oscars a lot of british accents singing on broadway and some unusually big audiences tuning into british accents in wigs on masterpiece theater British accents were telling jokes on David Letterman and Jay Leno. Nobody understood the jokes, but they were really responding to the accents. So maybe it was time, just maybe. A British accent on USAM? Well, hell. That was why Trisha was here. This was why loving New York was a great career move. It wasn't, of course, the stated reason. Her TV company back in the UK would hardly have stumped up the airfare and hotel bill for her to go job hunting in Manhattan. Since she was chasing something like ten times her present salary, they might have felt that she could have forked out for her own expenses. But she'd found a story, found a pretext, kept very quiet about anything ulterior, and they'd stumped up for the trip. A business class ticket, of course, but her face was known and she'd smiled herself an upgrade. The right moves had got her her nice room at the Brentwood, and here she was, wondering what to do next. The word on the street was one thing. Making contact was another. She had a couple of names, a couple of numbers, but all it took was being but all it took was being put on indeterminate hold a couple of couple of times, and she was back at square one. She put out feelers, she'd left messages, but so far none had been returned. The actual job she'd come to do she'd done in the morning. The imagined job she was after was only shimmering tantalisingly on an unreachable horizon. Shit. She caught a cab from the movie theatre back to the Brentwood. The cab couldn't get close to the curb because a big stretch limo was hogging all the available space and she had to squeeze her way past it. She walked out of the fetid goat-frying air and into the blessed cool of the lobby. The fine cotton of her blouse was sticking like grime to her skin. Her hair felt as if she'd bought it at a fairground on a stick. At the front desk, she asked if there were any messages, grimly expecting none. There was one. Oh, good. It had worked. She had gone out to the movie specifically in order to make the phone ring. She couldn't bear sitting in a hotel room waiting. She wondered, should she she open the message down here? 
Her clothes were itching, and she longed to take them all off and just lie on the bed. She turned the air conditioning way down to its bottom temperature setting, uh, and its way... Uh, sorry. She turned the air conditioning way down to its bottom temperature setting, way up to its top fan setting. What she wanted more than anything else in the world at the moment was goose pimples. Then a hot shower, then a cool one, then lying on a towel, on the bed again, drying in the air conditioning. Then reading the message. Maybe more goose pimples. Maybe all sorts of things. No. What she wanted more than anything else in the world was a job in American television at ten times her current salary. More than anything else in the world. More than anything else in the world. What she wanted more than anything else at all was no longer a live issue. She sat on a chair in the lobby under a kentia palm and opened the little cellophane windowed envelope. Please call, it said, not happy, and gave a number. The name was Gail Andrews. Gail Andrews. It wasn't a name she was expecting. It caught her unawares. She recognised it, but couldn't immediately say why. Was she Andy Mar Martin's secretary? Hilary Bass's assistant? Martin and Bass were the two major contact calls she'd made, or tried to make, at NBS. And what did not happy mean? Not happy... She was completely bewildered. Was this Woody Allen trying to contact her under an assumed name? It was a 212 area code number, so it was someone in New York who was not happy. Well, that narrowed it down a bit, didn't it? She went back to the receptionist at the desk. I have a problem with this message you just gave me, she said. Someone I don't know has tried to call me and says she's not happy. The receptionist peered at the note with a frown. Uh, do you know this person? he said. No, said Tricia. Hmm, said the receptionist. Sounds like she's not happy about something. Yes, said Tricia. Uh, looks like there's a name here, said the receptionist. Gail Andrews, do you know anybody of that name? No, said Tricia. Any idea what she's unhappy about? No, said Tricia. Have you called the number? There is a number here. No, said Tricia. You only just gave me the note. I'm just trying to get more information before I ring back. Perhaps I could talk to the person who took the call? Hmm, said the receptionist, scrutinising the note carefully. I don't think we have anybody called Gail Andrews here. No, no, I realise that, said Tricia. I just... I'm Gail Andrews. The voice came from behind Tricia. She turned around. I I'm sorry. I'm Gail Andrews. You interviewed me this morning. Oh, oh, good heavens, yes, said Tricia, slightly flustered. I left a message for you a few hours ago. I hadn't heard, so I came by. I didn't want to miss you. Oh, no, of course, said Tricia, trying hard to get up to speed. I don't know about this, said the receptionist, for whom speed was not an issue. Uh, would you like me to try this number now for you? Uh, no, no, that'll be fine, thanks, said Tricia. I, I can handle it now. 
"'I can uh, call this room number here for you if that'll help,' said the receptionist, peering at the note again. "'No, no, no, that, that won't be necessary,' said Tricia. "'That's my own room number. I'm the one the message was for. I, I think we've sorted this out now.' "'Hey, <laughs> you have a nice day now,' said the receptionist. Tricia didn't particularly want to have a nice day. She was busy. She also didn't want to talk to Gail Andrews. She had a very strict cut-off point as far as fraternising with the Christians was concerned. Her colleagues called her interview subjects Christians and would often cross themselves when they saw one walking innocently into the studio to face Tricia, particularly if Tricia was smiling warmly and showing her teeth. She turned and smiled frostily, wondering what to do. Gail Andrews was a well-groomed woman in her mid-forties. Her clothes fell within the boundaries defined by expensive good taste, but were definitely huddled up at the floatier end of those boundaries. She was an astrologer. A famous and, if rumour were true, influential astrologer having allegedly influenced a number of decisions made by the late President Hudson, including everything from which flavour of cream whip to have on which day of the week, to whether or not to bomb Damascus. Tricia had savaged her more than somewhat, not on the grounds of whether or not the stories about the President were true, that was old hat now, at the time, Ms. Andrews had emphatically denied advising President Hudson on anything other than personal, spiritual or dietary matters, which did not apparently include the bombing of Damascus. Nothing personal, Damascus, the tabloids had hooted at the time. No, this was a neat to little topical angle that Tricia had come up with about the whole issue of astrology itself. Ms. Andrews had not been entirely ready for it. Tricia, on the other hand, was not entirely ready for a rematch in the hotel lobby. What to do? I can wait for you in the bar if you need a few minutes, said Gail Andrews, but I would like to talk to you and I'm leaving the city tonight. She seemed to be slightly anxious about something rather than aggrieved or irate. "'Okay,' said Tricia. "'Give me ten minutes.' She went up to her room. Apart from anything else, she had so little faith in the ability of the guy on the message desk at the reception to deal with anything as complicated as a message that she wanted to be doubly certain that there wasn't a note under the door. It wouldn't be the first time that messages at the desk and messages under the door had been completely at odds with each other. There wasn't one. The message light on the phone was flashing, though. She hit the message button and got the hotel operator. Uh, "'You have a message from Gary Andress,' said the operator. "'Yes,' said Tricia, an unfamiliar name. "'What does it say?' "'Not hippie,' said the operator. "'Not what?' said Tricia. "'Hippie! What it says, Guy says he's not a hippie. I guess he wanted you to know that. You want the number?' As she started to she, and she started to dictate the number, Tricia suddenly realised that this was just a garbled version of the message she'd already had. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Are there any other messages for me? Room number? Tricia couldn't work out why the operator should suddenly ask her for the number this late in the conversation, but gave it to her anyway. Name? Macmillan. Tr Tricia Macmillan. Tricia spelt it patiently. Uh, not Mr. McManus. No. "'No more messages for you,' 
Click. Trisha sighed and dialed again. This time she gave her name and room number all over again up front. The operator showed not the slightest glimmer of recognition that they had been speaking less than ten seconds ago. "'I'm going to be in the bar,' explained Tricia. "'In the bar. If a phone call comes through for me, please, would you put it through to me in the bar?' "'Name?' They went through it all a couple more times, till Tricia was certain that everything that possibly could be clear was as clear as it possibly could be. She showered, put on fresh clothes, retouched her makeup with the speed of a professional, and, looking at her bed with a sigh, left the room again. She had half a mind just to sneak off and hide. No, not really. She had a look at herself in the mirror in the elevator lobby while she was waiting. She looked cool and in charge, and if she could fool herself, she could fool anybody. She was just going to have to tough it out with Gail Andrews. Okay, she had given her a hard time. Sorry, but that's the game we're all in, that sort of thing. Ms Andrews had agreed to do the interview because she had a new book out and TV exposure was free publicity. But there's no such thing as a free launch. No, she edited that line out again. What had happened was this. Last week, astronomers had announced that they had at last discovered a tenth planet out beyond the orbit of Pluto. They had been searching for it for years, guided by certain orbital anomalies in the outer planets, and now they found it, they were all terribly pleased and everyone was terribly happy for them, and so on. The planet was named Persephone, but rapidly nicknamed Rupert after some astronomer's parrot. And there was some tediously heartwarming story attached to this. And that was all very wonderful and lovely. Trisha had followed the story with, for various reasons, considerable interest. Then, while she'd been casting around for a good excuse to go to New York at her TV company's expense, she had happened to notice a press release about Gail Andrews and her new book, You and Your Planets. Gail Andrews was not exactly a household name, but the moment you mentioned President Hudson, Cream Whips and the amputation of Damascus, the world had moved on from surgical strikes. The official term had in fact been damasectomy, meaning the taking out of Damascus. Everyone remembered who you meant. Tricia saw an angle here, which she quickly sold to her producer. Surely the notion that great lumps of rock whirling in space knew something about your day and that you didn't uh, and you say surely the notion that great lumps of rock whirling in space knew something about your day that you didn't must take a bit of a knock from the fact that there was suddenly a new lump of rock out there that nobody had known about before that must throw out a few calculations mustn't it what about all those star charts and planetary motions and so on? We all knew, apparently, what happened when Neptune was in Virgo and so on. But what about when Rupert was rising? Wouldn't the whole of astrology have to be rethought? Wouldn't now perhaps be a good time to own up that it was all just a load of hogwash and instead take up pig farming, the principles of which were founded on some kind of rational basis?' 
If we'd known about Rupert three years ago, might President Hudson have been eating the boysenberry flavour on Thursday rather than on Friday? Might Damascus still be standing? That sort of thing. Gail Andrews had taken it all reasonably well. She was just starting to recover from the initial onslaught when she made the rather serious mistake of trying to shake Trisha off by talking smoothly about diurnal arcs, right ascensions, and some of the more abstruse areas of three-dimensional trigonometry. To her shock, she discovered that everything she delivered to Trisha came right back at her with more spin on it than she could cope with. Nobody had warned Gail that being a TV bimbo was, for Tricia, her second stab at a role in life. Besi behind her Chanel lip gloss, her coupe sauvage and her crystal blue contact lenses lay a brain that had acquired for itself in an earlier abandoned phase of her life a first-class degree in mathematics and a doctorate in astrophysics. She marched, rather briskly, out of the elevator a minute later, and went up to the reception desk again. Now, I'm going to write this out, she said, because I don't want anything to go wrong. She wrote her name in large letters on a piece of paper, then her room number, then, in capital letters, in the bar, and gave it to the receptionist, who looked at it. That's in case there's a message for me, OK? The receptionist continued to look at it. You, you want me to see if she's in her room? He asked. Two minutes later, Trisha swivelled into the bar seat next to Gail Andrews, who was sitting in front of a glass of white wine. You struck me as the sort of person who preferred to sit up at the bar rather than demurely at a table, she said. This was true, and caught Trisha a little by surprise. Vodka? said Gail. Yes, said Trisha suspiciously. She just stopped herself asking, how did you know? But Gail answered anyway. I asked the barman, she said with a kindly smile. The barman had her vodka ready for her and slid it charmingly across the glossy mahogany. Thank you, said Trisha, stirring it sharply. She didn't know quite what to make of all this sudden niceness and was determined not to be wrong-footed by it. People in New York were not nice to each other without reason. Miss Andrews, she said firmly, I'm sorry that you're not happy. I know you probably feel I was a bit rough with you this morning, but astrology is, after all, just popular entertainment, which is fine. It's part of a showbiz, and if it's that part that you've done well out of and good luck to you, it's fun. It's not a science, though, and it shouldn't be mistaken for one. I think that's something we both managed to demonstrate very successfully together this morning, while at the same time generating some popular entertainment, which is what we both do for a living. I'm sorry if you have a problem with that. I'm perfectly happy said Gail Andrews. Oh, said Tricia, not quite certain what to make of this. It, 
It said in your message that y you were not happy. No, said Gail Andrews. I said in my message that I thought that you were not happy. And I was just wondering why. Tricia felt as if she'd been kicked in the back of the head. She blinked. What? she said quietly. To do with the stars. You, you seem very angry and unhappy about something to do with the stars and the planets when we were having our discussion, and it's been bothering me, which is why I came to see if you were all right. Tricia stared at her. Miss Andrews, she started, and then realised that the way she had said it sounded exactly angry and unhappy and rather... Un sorry. Uh, Tricia stared at her. Miss Andrews, she started, uh, and then realised that the way she had said it had sounded exactly angry and unhappy and rather undermined the protest that she'd been trying to make. Please call me Gail, if that's OK. Tricia just looked bewildered. I know that astrology isn't a science, said Gail. Of course it isn't. It's just an arbitrary set of rules like chess or tennis or what's that strange thing you British play? Uh, cricket? Self-loathing? Parliamentary democracy. The rules. Yeah, the rules just kind of got there. They don't make any kind of sense except in terms of themselves. But when you start to exercise those rules, all sorts of processes start to happen, and you start to find out all sorts of stuff about people. In astrology, the rules happen to be about stars and planets, but they could be about ducks and drakes for all the difference it would make. It's just a way of thinking about a problem which lets the shape of that problem begin to emerge. The more rules, the tinier the rules, the more arbitrary they are, the better. It's like throwing a handful of fine graphite dust onto a piece of paper to see where the hidden indentations are. It lets you see the words that are written on the piece of paper above it that's now been taken away and hidden. The graphite's not important. It's just the means of revealing their indentations. So, you see, astrology's nothing to do with astronomy. It's just to do with people thinking about people. So, when you got so, I don't know, so emotionally focused on stars and planets this morning, I began to think, she's not angry about astrology. She is really angry and unhappy about actual stars and actual planets. People usually only get that unhappy and angry when they've lost something. That's all I could think, and I couldn't make any more sense of it than that, so I came to see if you were okay. Tricia was stunned. One part of her brain had already got started on all sorts of stuff. It was busy constructing all sorts of rebuttals to do with how ridiculous newspaper horoscopes were and the sort of statistical tricks they played on people. But gradually it petered out because it realised that the rest of her brain wasn't listening. She had been completely stunned. She had just been told by a total stranger something that she had kept completely secret for 17 years. She turned to look at Gail. I... She stopped. A tiny security camera up behind the bar had turned to follow her movement. This 
completely flummoxed her. Most people would not have noticed it. It was not designed to be noticed. It was not designed to suggest that nowadays even an expensive and elegant hotel in New York couldn't be sure that its clientele wasn't suddenly going to pull out a gun or not wear a tie. But carefully hidden though it was behind the vodka, it couldn't deceive the finely honed instinct of a TV anchor person, which was to know exactly when a camera was turning to look at her. "'Is something wrong?' asked Gail. "'No, I... I have to say that you've rather astonished me,' said Tricia. She decided to ignore the security camera. It was just her imagination playing tricks with her because she had television so much on her mind today. It wasn't the first time that it had happened.' A traffic monitoring camera, she was convinced, had swung round to follow her as she walked past it, and a security camera in Bloomingdale's had seemed to make a particular point of watching her trying on hats. She was, obviously, going dotty. She had even imagined that a bird in Central Park had been peering at her rather intently. She decided to put it out of her mind and took a sip of her vodka. Someone was walking around the bar asking people if they were Mr. McManus. Okay, she said, suddenly blurting it out. I don't know how you worked it out, but I didn't work it out. As you put it, I just listened to what you were saying. What I lost, I think, was a whole other life. Everybody does that. Every moment of every day. Every single decision we make, every breath we draw, opens some doors and closes many others. Most of them we don't even notice. Some we do. Sounds like you noticed one. Oh, yes, I noticed, said Tricia. All right, here it is. It's very simple. Many years ago, I met a guy at a party. He said he was from another planet, and did I want to go along with him? I said, yes, OK. It was that kind of party. I said to him to wait while I went to get my bag, and that I'd be happy to go off on a, to another planet with him. He said I wouldn't need my bag. I said he obviously came from a very backward planet, or he'd know that a woman always needed to take her bag with her. He got a bit impatient, but I wasn't going to be a complete pushover just because he said he was from another planet. I went upstairs, took me a while to find my bag, and then there was someone else in the room. I came down, and he was gone. Trisha paused. And, said Gail, the garden door was open. I went outside. There were lights, some kind of gleaming thing. I was just in time to see it rise up into the sky, shoot silently up through the clouds, and disappear. That was it. End of story. End of one life, beginning of another. But hardly a moment of this life goes by that I don't wonder about some other me. A me that didn't go back for her bag. I feel like she's out there somewhere and I'm walking in her shadow. A member of the hotel staff was now going round the bar asking people if they were Mr Miller. Nobody was. You really think this person was from another planet? asked Gail. Oh, certainly. There was the spacecraft. Oh, and he also had two heads. 
Two? Didn't anyone else notice? It was a fancy dress party. I see. And he had a bird cage over it, of course, with a cloth over the cage, pretended he had a parrot. He tapped on the cage and it did a lot of stupid pretty Polly stuff and squawking and so on. Then he pulled the cloth back for a moment and roared with laughter. There was another head in there laughing along with him. It was a worrying moment, I can tell you. I think you probably did the right thing, dear, don't you? said Gail. No, said Tricia, no, I don't. And I couldn't carry on doing what I was doing either. I was an astrophysicist, you see. You can't be an astrophysicist properly if you've actually met someone from another planet who's got a second head that pretends to be a parrot. You just can't do it. I couldn't do it, at least. I can see it would be hard. And that's probably why you tend to be a little hard on other people who talk what sounds like complete nonsense. Yes, said Tricia. Yes, I expect you're right. I'm sorry. That's okay. You're the first person I've ever told this to, by the way. I wondered. Uh, you married? Uh, no. So hard to tell these days, isn't it? But you're right to ask, because that was probably the reason. I came very close a few times, mostly because I wanted to have a kid. But every guy ended up asking why I was constantly looking over their shoulder. What do you tell someone? At one point, I even thought I might just go to a sperm bank and take potluck, have somebody's child at random. You can't seriously do that, can you? Trisha laughed. Probably not. I never quite went and found out for real. Never quite did it. Story of my life. Never quite did the real thing. That's why I'm in television, I guess. Nothing is real. Um, excuse me, lady. Uh, your name Trisha McMillan? Trisha looked round in surprise. There was a man standing there in a chauffeur's hat. Uh, yeah, yes, she said, instantly pulling herself back together again. Lady, I've been looking for you for about an hour. Hotel said they didn't have anybody of that name, but I checked back with Mr. Morton's office, and, and they said that this was definitely where you were staying, so I ask again. And they say that they never heard of you, so I, I got them to page you anyway, and they can't find you. In the end, I got to the office to fax a picture of you through to the car, and I had a look myself. He looked at his watch. Uh, maybe a bit late now, but do you want to go anyway? Trisha was stunned. Mr. Martin? You mean Andy Martin at NBS? That's correct, lady. Screen test for USAM. Trisha shot up out of her seat. She couldn't even bear to think of all the messages she'd heard for Mr. McManus and Mr. Miller. Only we have to hurry, said the chauffeur. As I heard, Mr. Martin thinks it might be worth trying a British accent. His boss at the network is dead against the idea. That's Mr. Zwingler. And I happen to know he's flying out to the coast this evening because I'm the one who has to pick him up and take him to the airport. OK, said Trisha. OK, I'm ready. Let's go. OK, lady, it's the big limo out the front. Trisha turned back to Gail. I'm sorry, she said. Go, 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 said Gail. And good luck. I've enjoyed meeting you. Trisha made to reach for, in, into her bag for some cash. Damn, she said. She'd left it upstairs. Drinks are on me, insisted Gail. Really, it's been very interesting. Trisha sighed. Look, I, I'm really sorry about this morning, and don't say another word. I'm fine. It's only astrology. It's harmless. It's not the end of the world. 
Thanks. And on impulse, Trisha gave her a hug. You got everything, said the chauffeur. You don't want to pick up your bag or anything? If there's one thing that life has taught me, said Trisha, it's never go back for your bag. A little over an hour later, Trisha sat on one of the pair of beds in her hotel room. For a few minutes, she didn't move. She just stared at her bag, which was sitting innocently on top of the other bed. In her hand was a note from Gail Andrews saying, Don't be too disappointed. Do ring if you want to talk about it. If I were you, I'd stay at home tomorrow night. Get some rest, but don't mind me and don't worry. It's only astrology. It's not the end of the world. Gail. The chauffeur had been dead right. In fact, the chauffeur seemed to know more about what was going on inside NBS than any other single person she'd encountered in the organisation. Martin had been keen. Zwingler had not. She had had her one shot at proving Martin right, and she had blown it. Oh well. Oh well. Oh well. Oh well. Time to go home. Time to phone the airline and see if she could still get the red eye back to Heathrow tonight. She reached for the big phone directory. Oh, first things first. She put down the directory again, picked up her handbag and took it through to the bathroom. She put it down and took out the small plastic case which held her contact lenses, without which she had been unable properly to read either the script or the auto cue. As she dabbed each tiny plastic cup into her eyes, she reflected that there is one thing that life had taught her. It was that there are times when you do not go back for your bag, and other times when you do. It had yet to teach her to distinguish between the two types of occasion. That, lovely ladies and gentlemen, is where we will leave it for this evening. It's a quarter past ten. Uh, apologies again for the slightly late start and the technological technological foobars at the beginning, but we got there. Um, once again, if you get a chance, please go over to my new YouTube channel. It's just got one uh, episode on yet, but I'm going to be putting lots of other content on there. Uh, just look for The Bearded Wit on YouTube and please subscribe and like and share and do the rest of it as you can do with all of this stuff here as well. Um, do make sure that you follow the channel here um, and like and follow just so you can stay up to date when I'm doing stuff. Uh, and if you have the ability and the wherewithal and the spare, um, please do go over to patreon.com forward slash The Bearded Wit uh, and sign up to be a patron uh, to help me fund doing all of this stuff. Um, uh, that would be great but thank you all of you as always for your company I love doing this and I love the, the positive feedback and, um, and, and the ideas and your humour uh, keep your ideas coming in as I say we're into the last official or the last Douglas Adams penned book um, so we need to start thinking about if we're going to keep doing this which I intend to do um, if you guys are up for it uh, what else we want to dive into so do send me your ideas drop me a line I'll give you name checks um, and uh, and so on and so forth but thanks very much for your company as always on a Sunday evening uh, it's a delight for me to do this uh, I hope you guys enjoy it 
um and um yeah see you next week see you guys bye <laughs>